Hey listeners, thanks for another great year. We are starting a new tradition where we end the year with a clip show recapping all the women we have covered on the show who have had quarters made of them this year. So here you go, our first ever end of year quarter clip show. Warm wishes and we will see you again in the new year with season three and all new episodes. History, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, need not be lived again. Lift up your eyes upon this day breaking for you. Give birth again to the dream. Women, children, men, take it into the palms of your hands. Mold it into the shape of your most private needs. Sculpt it into the image of your most public self. Lift up your heart. Each new hour holds new chances for new beginnings. So. Like Lexi said, I always say, let's crack open that storybook. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. Uh, for Marguerite Annie Johnson or Maya Angelou, I'm going to try a new way of, quote, storytelling for just in general, huge historic heroes by telling a couple of, quote, short stories rather than like one long telling of their life goals. Um, Vignettes. What? vignettes vignettes yeah like um if you ever read the book the things they carried oh my god Lexi's a literary snob it's it's a book told in vignettes yes, That's yes. Kind of what vine was also short for vignettes yes and I thought it was fitting to do it for our author ladies because like short stories haha so funny um and especially our author uh, Mayo has written 36 books, and some of those actually include cookbooks. So throw back to our previous episode. So story number one, I've titled, quote, I love the uniforms. So Maya has spent some time in San Francisco, and she was actually the first female African-American cable car conductor. So for those of you who are not familiar with San Francisco's cable car. They're the classic, almost like trolley-like vehicles that make a bunch of noise when you hear them. And they're mainly downtown SF to go up and down those massive F-off hills. And they're a huge tourist attraction at this point. And the secret is, guys, do this if you're ever in SF, past Corona, all that good stuff. Um, it's $14 to like ride it. But if you get one of those like day passes included, then that's like, that's what you have to do. You have to make sure like the day pass you get, or if you're a local, cause a lot of them use it for their transportation of like, if you're on top of Knob Hill, you go down the hill or up the hill to get to really where like the financial district stuff is, um, all the big businesses. And in our like monthly pass where you pay like $80 for it, you get like unlimited trolley car our cable car. I always called it the trolley because I, I don't know why. And Robert and other locals would yell at me saying, it's the cable car. The trolley is something different. They all look the same to me. And I'm still going to get lost either way. Anywho, 16-year-old Maya wanted this job and even said on like an Oprah Winfrey talk show, I loved the uniforms, hence the title. And it was her mother who actually said that she should go to the city office and get the job if she wanted it so badly. And when she went to the area like where the cable car conductors got hired, she was noted to be reading Russian literature and she wasn't first 
hired or even allowed to like apply because of her race. Like, because surprise, surprise, America wasn't woke and still not woke, but she read her Russian literature, like the boss girl she is and was hired. And when she like did th get the application actually um, before being hired, she was under the legal age. So she actually wrote that she was 19, like the badass she was. And as a conductor, her mom would also join her. And like, she started like conducting at like the butt crack of dawn of 4 a.m. And her mom would um, kind of go behind the trolley car. And the trolley car isn't like a closed vehicle. It's not like a bus or a train where the doors closed. Like you could just hop on and you'll see people hold onto a pole and stand on outside and cars come like within inches of you. You can't even have like a backpack or something. Like you have to like hug yourself to this pole essentially. I've almost gotten hit once or twice. Also for cars going by, there's special lanes. If this was like the same back then as well, there's special lanes that these cable cars can go through. Regardless, her mom would trail Maya's cable car. And Maya said, quote, with her pistol on the passenger seat. So I love that. I like, I just, uh, juicy. And she worked there for about a semester before deciding to return to school. Second story, I'm calling it getting pen to paper. In the 1950s, African-American writers in New York City formed the Harlem Writers Guild to essentially support Black authors in the publication process and affirm them as the beautiful writers they are. And the Guild is still around today. The link is in the show notes, of course, of course. And she was one of the early members. And during this time, she began to write, I know why the caged bird sings, an autobiography of her life that was published in 1969 and many claim to be her most famous book. This is now where like my memory is kind of getting fuzzy because I've read a lot of her books and a lot of her books or most of her books are autobiographies or what she actually created as a genre during this time as autobiographical fiction. And that's basically taking parts of your life and adding some elaborate essence to connect it more, make it more juicy. And this one, I think is the one that took like 13 years to write. Like she kind of wrote it along with her life and also included some earlier parts. So she just like took truly the most time and it really paid off. And she also during this time in the guild continued to explore art forms in poetry, dance, music, and even like writing and directing films. So we get her just really exploring herself as a writer. And lastly, we have story number three, which I've called, quote, On the Pulse of Morning. And On the Pulse of Morning was the title of the poem she read for Clinton's presidential inauguration in 1993. That's why when Alana was like, hey, let's, let's do a quick nod of the election. I was like, ha ha, got this. She was the second poet ever to read an original work at a presidential inauguration. The first was Robert Frost at JFK's in 1961. And the poem itself shares themes of inclusion and change and the role of their president and like the responsibility it comes, but also 
like the role and responsibility a citizen has, which are all things we should just remember right now, 2020. And she was chosen because she grew up in Stamps, Arkansas, or like a lot of her childhood was in Stamps, Arkansas, which was rather close to where Clinton was born. And he said that her writing really resonated with him. For example, he was quoted saying, when I read, I know why the caged bird sings, I knew exactly who she was talking about and what she was talking about in that book. And that references how Clinton's grandfather managed a grocery store that was in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. And actually for this uh, spoken word poem was recorded and she ended up winning a Grammy award in 1994. It was apparently like an amazing, amazing thing. Um, I didn't have enough time to go searching on the YouTubes for it because I was researching another gal because we're recording two episodes tonight, but it was noted to be almost as like a theatrical performance. She just exuded that power and greatness and dug deep into her roots of being a dancer and a performer. And before I finish, because I have my three short stories, I would like to note that Maya at times had a very difficult life with racial injustice, physical and sexual assault, loss, and just the list goes on. But I did not want to pick stories on that because even in her, a lot of her books, she would focus on the positives and say how she took the bad and turned it into something good. And each three of those stories had a little nugget. So dig deep into what I said and pick out positive from the not so positive, the bad, if you will. And I'd just like to share my favorite book of hers, which was published in 2013, a year before she died. And it's Mom and Me and Mom. And she also died at age 83. So she lived quite a life. Uh, one of my favorite quotes of hers is, if you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude focus of media attention around the world has been on Dr. Sally Ride, uh, who emphasizes that she's a mission specialist and a scientist who just also happens to be a woman. However, as the first woman to fly in space on board a U.S. spacecraft, history is undoubtedly going to focus on that uh, as well as her accomplishments to date, such as a doctorate in physics from Stanford University. I am pretty sure you've all heard the name Sally Ride, and if you haven't, there are lots of resources out there that cover the basics of Sally's story. So because of this, I am only briefly covering the typical facts about Sally, and instead I am focusing on some information that is often left out of the traditional coverage of Sally's story. Sally Ride was born on May 26, 1951 in Encino, Los Angeles, California, which happens to be the location of the Karate Kid mural. Sorry, I get distracted really easily. Um, I just finished season three of Cobra Kai. I apologize. Back to Sally. Her interests were encouraged and nourished by her parents, except when she got interested in football. Yes, American football, which her parents determined to be too dangerous. She trained from a young age to play tennis professionally and explored the career option extensively. After trying to make a career out of tennis, Sally decided to return to college attending Stanford, playing on the tennis team and majoring in physics and English. She stayed on at Stanford, completing a master's degree and a doctorate in physics. So she is a three-time alum of Stanford University. 
I just I love that because I think of the two-time GW alum thing or the three-time GW alum thing anyway I digress I am a two-time GW alum to be Sames Samesies in 1977 NASA decided two important things that allowed Sally to become an astronaut one NASA decided to expand beyond recruiting pilots and focus on recruiting scientists to complete research in space two NASA decided it was time to put women in space. So after seeing an ad for NASA's recruitment in 1977, Sally decided to apply. Five women were selected to be the first female astronauts as part of NASA's 1978 class. Sally was one of those women. The women trained in scientific and physical tasks as well as in jet flight. Sally excelled. In 1982, Sally married fellow astronaut Stephen Hawley and they divorced five years later. In June 1983, Sally was one of the five mission members to fly aboard the Challenger Space Shuttle. She became the youngest American person to go to space and still is the youngest American person to have been in space at the age of 32. And she was also the first American woman to fly in space, as I'm sure many of you have heard. That seems to be her claim to fame. In interviews leading up to her first mission launch, reporters asked her some of the most inappropriate questions I've ever heard someone ask in an interview, including, but not limited to, what makeup do you safely wear in space? And will you be able to have children, and they did not phrase it as nicely as I have, after you go to space? In addition to the questions, Sally also suffered from being the subject of sexist jokes. Johnny Carson, who was a late night show host, for those who've never heard of him, made a joke suggesting Sally would be late for the launch, looking for a purse to match her astronaut shoes. I have a lot of feelings about that. I won't make the frustration noises that Alana does not like to have to try and find a way to, to transcribe for our podcast, but oh my God, I don't know how to express how I feel about that. It's just the most disgusting thing. She was unhappy about all of this. She was saddened that society still could not treat her and her male coworkers with equal respect. And she spoke out about this before and after the mission because she couldn't stand how people were being so poo-poo. So that, that really just grinds my gears. Does it, wait, wait, wait. Does it grind every gear in your solar system of a body? Yes, it does. Quote from Haley that really fits this episode. We referenced it in the Aaron episode, so it's not just like an inside joke between us. The listeners should be able to know it. Well, if they listen to every episode instead of skipping around. But everyone should listen to the Aaron episode. It's amazing. It is our most listened to episode, so we have people who've listened to that and never listened to anything else unless 300 of the 383 listens are Alana, which is possible. (laughs) I don't think 300, but a lot of them, yeah. In 1984... Sally participated in her second shuttle mission with the focus on observing Earth from space, which is a pretty fun job. Unfortunately, this was her last mission in space. So I think a lot of people hear about Sally Ride and they assume astronauts go to space over and over and over. But going to space is really difficult. It's something that takes a lot of work, a lot of physical and emotional energy. So Sally only went twice. Other people go longer. Some people stay on the ISS, the International Space Station, for longer periods of time. Some people don't, and that's just how that is. In 1986, 
tragedy struck the NASA family. And I'm about to get real serious for a second. This story is a little sad, gets a little serious, diverges from the normal happy giddiness of the show and goes into some of the deeper stuff and darker stuff that we cover. So if you don't want to talk about anything like that and you don't want to hear anything like that, just skip ahead like a minute and 30 and we'll get back to the other lighter stuff. So the space shuttle Challenger exploded 73 seconds after liftoff. There were five astronauts on board, Ronald Irwin McNair, Michael John Smith, Dick Scobie, Ellison Onizuka, the first Asian American in space, and Judith Arlene Resnick, Sally's NASA 1978 classmate. So one of the first five women selected as an astronaut. Two non-astronauts selected as payload specialists, which is basically a person who's not an astronaut, but is going to space to do some sort of research and is sponsored by a private organization or a corporation that wants to do science. So they train with the astronauts, but they aren't NASA astronauts. Two of them were selected to also go to space in this mission. A teacher set to be the first American school teacher in space, Christina McGaffley. I think I said it right. I hope I said that right. An engineer, Gregory Jarvis, were also on board. The entire seven person crew perished in the disaster. NASA put a pause on the shuttle program and Sally retired from flying in space. Sally retiring from her role as an astronaut did not mean she was leaving NASA behind, however. Sally was appointed by President Ronald Reagan to an investigation panel intended to explore the circumstances that led to the failure of the Challenger shuttle and increase safety in the shuttle program moving forward. Sally was passionate about uncovering the whole truth and asked tough questions of the witnesses who testified to the panel. But Sally wasn't only tough, she was also compassionate. One witness, an engineer who had helped construct the fatal shuttle, revealed that he had been shamed by his coworkers they were not NASA employees. They were part of a third party that was contracted to do work. His coworkers were shaming him for exposing issues with the functions of seals on the shuttle that they would malfunction during cold weather. He pointed it out. They would shame him. And the issue ended up being investigated as a factor in the mission's failure. After he finished his testimony, Sally gave him a hug, something she was not known to do often, especially in public. Before his death in 2012, the engineer noted that Sally's support was one of the few things that got him through the guilt and sadness he felt in the toughest moments of his life. After the investigation, Sally transitioned her career to space administration, taking the role of special assistant to the NASA administrator for long range and strategic planning. The following year, Sally led a group who wrote a document outlining future recommendations for NASA's shuttle program. It suggested the construction of a permanent moon outpost and exploration of Mars. Sally then retired from NASA and became a physics professor, which is pretty cool because you can imagine being a woman studying physics and having Sally as your professor, that would be pretty cool. That would be like, oh, hey, my professor was in space. What'd your professor do? And I'm sure that would help a lot of women in the physics program at the university dream big. Sally became very passionate about education. In 2001, she and her partner started Sally Ride Science, a company with the goal of making STEM education fun and encouraging students from all backgrounds to explore careers in STEM. In 2003, Sally was once again called to the difficult task of investigating a disaster that took the lives of seven of her fellow astronauts. Sally was the only person to serve on the investigation panels for both the Challenger and Columbia accidents. One of the aspects of Sally's life that often gets ignored is her relationship with Dr. Tam O'Shaughnessy. 
This is because during Sally's life, she kept her personal life private. Sally and Tam met when they were kids competing in tennis competitions. They remained close friends throughout life and eventually fell in love. They began the romantic relationship in 1985 and were partners in life and business for 27 years until Sally passed away. Tam has a doctorate in school psychology and is currently executive director of the Sally Ride Science at UC San Diego. The organization which resulted after UC San Diego acquired the Sally Ride Science program Sally and Tam founded together. During their time together, Tam and Sally wrote children's books about science, and Tam has continued to author educational science books for children on her own. On July 23, 2012, Sally passed away after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. In 2013, President Obama posthumously honored Sally with a Presidential Medal of Freedom. Tam accepted the award on Sally's behalf and was introduced as her life partner. They didn't try and do the friends or roommates thing. They were like, her life partner, Tam. Well, no I think they said Dr. O'Shaughnessy. Um, they did not do the gal pal Gals thing. being pals. They, they went all for it. I mean, I guess some crazy people could be like, life partner doesn't mean anything. But I mean, it, yes, I it think does. it's pretty clear. Yes, it does. Uh, I think it's pretty Shut clear what up. life partner means. As far as we know, of the 550 American individuals who have traveled to space, Sally has been the only LGBT plus individual. If another American who has flown in space identifies as LGBT, they have not shared this information publicly. The moral of the story, I think we need some more gays in space, or at least some more openly gays, gays in space, uh, to inspire the young gays to gay in space. Words, things, I uh, would love to have more space, space gays. <laughs> My mouth is like trying to make words and it's like a tongue twister that isn't a tongue I twister. I heard what one point mace gaze and I was like, no, <laughs> no. Space gaze. Space um, gaze. Highly preferable. Gloria Steinman, if you guys have heard of her, prominent woman, wrote, millions of little girls are going to sit by their television sets and see they can be astronauts, heroes, explorers, and scientists. I believe this quote perfectly sums up Sally's legacy as she was most certainly inspiring to many women and has inspired many to pursue science. But Sally's goal wasn't to be an inspiration. She often said that her dream was just to soar amongst the stars and that she did. Of her time in space, she's quoted saying, the stars don't look bigger, but they do look brighter. In my links for further learning this week, I have included some videos of Tam talking about Sally. And they are wonderful. And they gave me a warm, fuzzy, happy feeling because Tam clearly loves Sally like so much. So if you want like a cute romance, fun, happy time, please go watch Tam talk about Sally because it's just like this. And she talks like she's a doctor of school psychology. Like she has that vibe. And she just, but also talks about Sally in such a cute way. I don't know. I'm obsessed with it. I'm a big fan. Watch it. If you want to see a heartwarming video, just check that out. I also include a link to Fly Girls, Women in Aerospace, which is an episode of STEM in 30, the Air and Space Museum program I'm currently interning with. This episode is a great introduction to the contributions of women in the aerospace industry. Even though the show's intended audience is middle schoolers, I find that the content is great for those of us who are not science experts in all age groups because it explains science clearly. So check that out if you're interested and you need more of science in like layman's terms than non-science terms. And you can also buy a Sally Ride Barbie. That's her legacy. Like women in space, gays in space, buy a Barbie. Need I say more? Capitalism.
capitalism. My guest, director-producer Valerie Redhorse Mole. Let's start with the subject. What is the subject of your, your documentary? Well, the name of the film is Mankiller, and that actually is Wilma Mankiller's last name. Wilma was the first uh, woman-elected principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, and her story is just so relevant today. So my political icon for today is Wilma Mankiller, who has the best last name ever in the entire world. It's amazing. It's actually a military rank that was achieved by one of her ancestors, but kids made fun of her for it. If your name is Mankiller, why would you why would you make fun of that? Because one First time off, I would be scared. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Why wouldn't you be scared? One time as like a, a grown up, she was fed up with it. And so she said to somebody that it was a nickname and that she'd earned it. And I'm just like, oh, what a woman. Very cool. So she was born on November 18th. Scorpio, 1945 in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Her father's name was Charlie Mankiller and he was Cherokee and her mother was an Irish Dutch woman named Irene Sutton. And Wilma describes her family as an activist family. So that is how like she grew up to, to be an activist. She was the sixth of 11 children. So right there in the middle. Um, and when she was 11 years old, when she was 11 years old, federal relocation programs that meant to encourage, I'm doing the massivest air quotes in the whole world, encourage assimilation. <laughs> the racism. I, I just puked in my mouth a little bit. The racism. But they moved her family to San Francisco, where they were poor in Oklahoma and they were destitute in San Francisco. It was bad news bears. Uh, she married for the first time in 1963 to an accountant from California named Hector Hugo Olaya DeBardi. They had two daughters, and I'm going to bring up their names, Gina and Felicia. Felicia is my middle name. I think it was Haley. Haley, was it you who I told you my middle name and you thought I was kidding? Yeah. Felicia is legit my middle name. That's true. I will show you my birth certificates. Or my passport probably is more likely because I have that on me. Um, in 1969, there was a 19-month Native American occupation of the, the island of Alcatraz. Like, nobody was using it. It had yet to become a tourist trap, and it wasn't a prison. So it was sort of, like, out of use. But for 19 months, Native American activists occupied Alcatraz and they like had schools and were just doing really amazing things. That's so cool. I didn't know that about Alcatraz and that is so cool. It was amazing. Um, but this happened while Wilma was living in San Francisco, which is, you know, right near Alcatraz, of course. It awoke something in her. She considered it a benchmark in her activism. It inspired her to shift her career more towards political activism as opposed to being a mom and doing other things. Her husband wanted her to stay home and be more of like a traditional, massive air quotes again, housewife. So they got a divorce, which is what I would do as well if my husband was like, no, I want you to stay home. I'd be like, first of all, why didn't you tell me this before we got married? We could have saved both of us a, a whole heap of trouble and just not gotten married in the first place, but okay. But they got divorced. And so Wilma moved with her daughters back to her family land in Oklahoma, uh, where she became involved in community government and improvement projects. 
1979, she survived a very bad car accident where her best friend died. And she was also diagnosed with, I'm probably going to pronounce this super wrong, myasthenia gravis, which is a neuromuscular disorder that made it hard to talk, hard to write, hard to use her hands in general. So she started the Bell, Oklahoma Water Project. And Bell, Oklahoma is a tiny, itty bitty little town in Oklahoma, so small. Most people only spoke Cherokee and they were in like dangerous living conditions. There was no clean water. It was just a bad time all around. But using federal grant money and local volunteers, she managed to construct 18 miles of a water system and repaired a lot of the dangerous living conditions. While she was recruiting volunteers, she met her second husband, who was full Cherokee, named Charlie Soap. I'm not going to say nothing about her dad and her second husband having the same name, but okay. That's a deal breaker for me. But you know what, Wilma? Go for it. I found another person with the name Fuzzy. I I think I would have to marry them. I don't know. Like, I feel like that's just too insane not to. (laughs) So Ross Swimmer in 1983 chose her as a running mate for the Cherokee Nation election as he was running for principal chief and he wanted her to be his deputy. And they won despite sexism and death threats. Uh, And in 1985, Wimmer took a position in the federal government and Wilma became full-time chief, full-time principal chief, not deputy anymore. She served two more terms for a total of 10 years as principal chief. She decided not to run for re-election in 1995 because of her health. Under her leadership, tribal enrollment was up, infant mortality was down, literacy was up, unemployment was down. She created a self-sufficient healthcare system, although that's not really going so great anymore because of COVID and racism. Two really bad things, just in general. Of my least favorite things right now, I would say COVID and racism. Really high up there on my list of dislikes. She won the Presidential Medal of Freedom, actually, in 1998 from President Bill Clinton, who I'm probably going to talk about uh, in not a flattering light in a couple weeks. And she died in 2010 of pancreatic cancer. She left a legacy of cultural pride and self-sufficiency and self-government for the Cherokee people. It was her whole thing was like, we can do this ourselves. We aren't helpless. We can create our own governments and our own systems we can be just as good as government for ourselves as these white people who are like imposing these restrictions on us. We can govern ourselves. And so that was her whole thing was like, we don't need outside help. That's the story of Wilma Mankiller. She can be trusted. How do you know? A woman's intuition. So a content warning for this story. This story will talk about racism, fetishism, sexism, misrepresentation, all that stuff in Hollywood. So feel free to skip ahead to post the commercials if you don't want to hear about that stuff today. That's totally cool. So Anna Mae Wong was the first Asian American Hollywood star. She is also yet another lady I studied at the Smithsonian Libraries while working on the Women America Extraordinary Project. So as per usual, um, and guess what? My lady next week is also from that project. So the actress who would be known by the stage name Anna Mae Wong was born Wong Liu Song, the daughter of Chinese Americans in 1905 in Los Angeles, California. Her grandfather had come to America in the mid-19th century, but sadly died while his son, Anna's father, was still quite young. 
When Anna was born, she was the second of eight siblings, and her father and mother owned and operated a laundry in Los Angeles's bustling Chinatown. The silent movie industry was also growing in Los Angeles at this time, and Chinatown quickly became the backdrop for the films. Anna became enamored with the thrill of the movie industry, watching as her neighborhood became a set for major productions, and after appearing as an extra in a film called The Red Lantern, Anna quickly began gaining a following and securing more roles. By the age of just 17, she had left high school to pursue acting full-time and was cast in a leading role in the film The Toll of the Sea. She was often stereotyped being placed in roles as a dragon lady, quote-unquote, or an enslaved woman. Her physical features as an Asian woman were fetishized. Despite her rising popularity, Anna was unable to obtain a leading role because at the time, law prohibited interracial affection on and off screen. In an interview, she once said, I can't for the life of me understand why a white man can't fall in love with me on screen without breaking some terrible censorship laws. Anna quickly realized directors preferred to cast non-Asians in Asian roles, particularly for this reason. More often than not, Anna was playing alongside a cast entirely made up of white men and women, some in yellow face. In the 1930s, she auditioned for the lead role in the film adaptation of the book, The Good Earth. Even though the main character in the book was a Chinese woman, Anna was rejected for the role. Instead, the part was given to a German actress, Louise Rayner. Louise played the part in yellow face. She won an Academy Award for the role. This event had a huge impact on Anna. Disheartened, Anna stepped away from the limelight and spent time traveling to China to connect with her heritage. In the 1950s, she returned to Hollywood and became the first Asian American lead in an American TV show, starring in The Gallery of Madame Lu Song, the title character being named after Anna's birth name. Unfortunately, little value was given to TV archives in the mid 20th century and all known copies of the show have been lost. It is unlikely that any episodes of her show will ever be recovered. In 1961, after a career that spanned across film, TV, and Broadway, she died at the age of just 56 years old. Because I feel like someone is going to bring it up, you know, in the comments or something. In 2020, she was portrayed on the show Hollywood on Netflix. And quite frankly, I hated it. I hated the way they portrayed her. And that's all I'm going to say on it. So I don't suggest you watch it or support the way they portrayed her. Oh no, because I've been dying to watch that show. I mean, you Jane can watch Parsons. it, but the way they like, portray her. The other, like some of the other main cast. The way they oh, portray no. her is real poopoo doo doo. I mean, they're portraying her in the time period in which she is watching a German woman in yellow face win an Academy Award for a role they won't give her. So it's the worst part of her life. Yeah. And I just think she deserves better than that. Um, oh, abs- now that I got this heads up. But I'm she's like, not the main character of the show, and the show is about lots fast of other forward. Things. Yeah, maybe you just skip those parts. Or scream. <laughs> how, how does one do yellow face? So, like eyeliner and face oh, paint eyeliner. and changing someone's appearance to make them appear more Asian. If you've ever seen the movie Sayonara. I mean, I got I got that it was changing. Yeah. Sayonara. But I was just is like wondering, really like, like, it's usually eyeliner like seems to be the big. And then eyeliner also like taping up the eyelids. Yeah, taping face, taping the face back to make the face more like, you and know, then, that's like, horrible. Um, yeah, you do that. The eye thing that every single fucking third and fourth grader in my elementary school thought was so fucking yeah. hilarious to pull your eyes back. And also Ridiculous. like Everyone the hairstyles, like making someone dye their hair black <laughs> or wear a black wig. And then also the, the dress and the attire because you know, a lot of these these movies she was in, they were really stereotypical versions of traditional Asian attire. And a lot of them, there were a bunch of 
white people playing Asian people. And then she was also there, which is a whole weird thing. But you can download free Anime Wong postcards on the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center website, and they are pretty cool. I have Alana link that in our show notes. Also, a lot of her movies are completely free to watch because some of them are from like pre-1920, whatever the year is for current copyright renewal, 95 years. And I have some of those on the YouTube playlist that Haley will make. And I also have some trailers for other ones that aren't free so that you can kind of get a good gist of all her work. But I did want to warn everyone that there are some racial slurs and some comments about Anna's characters that are not tasteful. And there is yellow face in quite a few of them. In fact, I think the vast majority of her movies have other characters in yellow face. And so Anna is a stunning performer in all of them, of course, but I just advise you to watch thoughtfully and with caution. You know, I wish sometimes old movies would come with like a little warning. Like I know they do that with cartoons now with the Looney Tunes. There's like a little warning, like, you know, this part might have some racism. Disney they, I think the, the old ones, Disney Plus did that. Too. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I'll write in the with the description so of the playlist. Pop up on the playlist. Yeah, because we're not endorsing the, the yellow face. Mm-hmm. Just that's the movies Anna's in because, nope. you know, Asian men couldn't be in Hollywood. Oh, no. Obviously, that was sarcasm. But yeah, I also included some further learning on modern yellow face because guess what? Hollywood still does that. What the fuck? <laughs> it's 2021. But yes, there is modern problems with Yellowface, including some very famous celebrities. You may have forgotten did Yellowface, but did it really recently. And to this day, no Asian American woman has won the award from the Academy Award for Best Actress. And it just seems crazy that this year, the second ever Asian woman won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress, but there's still none in the Best Actress category. Not that the Academy Awards mean much to me since they hella racist, but I think it's really, I guess my comment is, I think it's lovely that the Academy Awards are like, oh, Korean film, interesting, but they're like almost perpetuating like a, a fetishism and foreignness of Asian film instead of actually supporting Asian American actresses and actors. What's up with that? Like going back to what we were saying at the beginning of the episode, like it's ruining films for me like how these award shows and just how like production companies as a whole actors so I don't actresses. watch American TV anymore honestly very limited it's, very it's very limited very limited American TV also Asian male leads like never get a chance in Hollywood ever I mean I mean we do have Marvel's finally gonna have an Asian male lead in a movie which I guess okay Disney okay all right are you gonna fuck it up like you fucked up Mulan Oof. Oof. Are you? Are you going to fuck it up like you fucked up Mulan? I don't know. Probably. Disney has a lot to make up for just like as a company. Listen, they brought out Moana and our expectations got really raised for like diversity and quality of (laughs) diverse storytelling. (laughs) They brought out Moana like raised the level. They were like Pacific Islander representation. Indigenous representation. Like they It's one of my favorite movies. Feminism. You know, like women's relationships. Women's relationships with their ancestors. There's no romantic relationship because she's a minor you'll her love connection to, see to her that. ancestors is so representative of indigenous communities anyway the so we all got teased and then mulan beautiful. was like the chinese government told us to do this you know it was just not 
you know, you can find this podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and the transcript of this episode will be on ladyhistorypod.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or follow us on Patreon. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Navarra. You can find her on Instagram at post.alex.ism. Our theme music is by me, Garage Bandit, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us, and we will not see you, but you will hear for us next time on Lady History. Next time on Lady History, we're back. It's our new season. It's 2023. Yeah, it is 2023 because we're in 2022. It's 2023. It's a new year. New us. Maybe new Lexi and Alana. Definitely not new Haley. We're catching up to like 2025. Nope. That's in two fucking years. <laughs> Can we tell that like Haley's <laughs> definitely exhausted? That's, that's perfect. I love it. I love it. Okay. Okay, great.